Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and begin reading at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus. But you put off, concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray that You would take that which is preached in the, the weakness and the foolishness of preaching and that You would accomplish Your will by strengthening and building up this Your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. Last week we looked at verses 17 through 28, and we saw that Paul was giving uh, hope for the hopeless, hope for the hopeless to really be holy. And uh, there were a lot of people there who had gone through an entire lifetime of bondage to sin, and yet he indicated they can conquer those sin habits. Uh, they can put off the old, put on the new. And we've come up to verses 29 through 32, where Paul ends with some admonitions on uh, words and attitudes. And even though we're going to be separating those two this week and next week, they do belong together. But uh, I felt we needed to tackle these uh, a little bit more in depth. So uh, we're just going to be looking at the words section, words of grace today. But uh, the reason I say they belong together is Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's Matthew 12, verse 34. Over 150 times, the Bible says your words reflect where your heart is at. Okay, so out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And a lot of times, these attitudes that reflect themselves in words are contagious, and our kids pick them up just like that. We say, man, I wish they wouldn't. Uh, but when we speak that way, many times they pick it up. And even if they don't want to pick it up, many times our kids do pick that up. Um, you may be able to relate to the confessions of a mother who put this uh, on the last Mother's Day on a website. And she said she taught her kids a whole lot about life through her angry words. She said, I taught them how to value a job well done. If you're going to kill each other, do it outside. I just finished cleaning. And how to engage in time travel. If you don't straighten up, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week. <laughs> and the how to use brilliant logic. Because I said so. That's why. <laughs> and how to use irony. 
keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> and how to give clear instructions. Shut your mouth and eat your supper. <laughs> and how to engage in hypocrisy. If I've told you once, I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. <laughs> and how to define justice. One day you'll have kids and I hope they turn out just like you. <laughs> I think all of us have had some sayings that uh, we've had to confess to the Lord. Lord, those were not the best things to be saying to my kids or to be saying to my parents, you know, uh, either way. And speech is very powerful. I think we all recognize that. When I was a kid, uh, all of the kids used to say this saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think we knew deep down that was not true. We were trying to console ourselves, but we knew those words hurt desperately and in terms of breaking of bones, um, Psalm 42.10 says, As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. He says, man, it hurts just as bad as the breaking of bones. In Psalm 12, verse 18, uh, David said that speech can be like the piercings of the sword. And since some of what uh, we're going to be talking about today could be hard to change, because these are habits that are deeply ingrained and they just come up. We just we don't intend them to come out, but they're just there. And we're wondering, how in the world do I overcome uh, these terrible habits that I have? Uh, how do I teach an old dog new tricks? How do I gain the victory? I want to remind you of what we talked about last week, that even though this side of heaven, we're not going to be able to completely be free of sin, we can conquer those deeply entrenched habits so they're no longer habits any longer. We can move from Romans 7 into Romans 8. Anyway, just by way of review, in chapter 1, we saw that the Father is on our side. Uh, verse 3 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And so He chose us to be holy. He's rooting for you. He's on your side. Then in chapter 2, we saw that the Son is on our side because He took what the Father planned for our holiness and He purchased everything that the Father planned so that it could be worked in our lives. Then in chapter 3, we see the Spirit's on our side because He follows the Father's plan. He takes what the Spirit has purchased. He works that in our lives powerfully. In verse 16, it says that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we see that the church is on your side. Well, at least it should be. Uh, we're supposed to be rooting for each other, encouraging, exhorting one another, right? And in good works. And each part contributes its share to the growth and maturation. Then in verses 17 through 24, we looked at nine steps to victory. And in verses 23 through 28, uh, we saw three examples that Paul gave. And we used those three to look at different facets of how to put off the old habit, how to put on the new habit. Now, we're not going to be repeating uh, any of last week's stuff, even though I'm, I'm mentioning this, that if you weren't here, I would encourage you to read the sermon off the web because some of those things are going to be needed for putting off the old habits of speech, putting on the new habits of speech. We're not going to cover everything. But um, I do want to look at verses 29 through 30. Let me read that one more time. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What is a corrupt word? That's the million dollar question. And literally it means rotten or unwholesome. Uh, one dictionary gives these meanings. 
rank, foul, putrid, rotten, worthless, disgusting. And so it would rule out crude talk, scatological talk, uh, obscenities. But Pillar uh, New Testament Commentary says, what is prohibited then is harmful speech of any kind, whether it be abusive language, vulgar speech, slander, or contemptuous talk. There are a lot of Christians who... Uh, continue to use, once they were saved, the coarse talk that they grew up with. That's all that they had ever known before they were Christians. And nobody has told them that they needed to change this, um, you know, this method of speech. And uh, they think it gives some zing and interest to their conversation. You know, it'd be kind of boring speech if we couldn't give those raunchy zingers uh, once in a while. But I want you to look at chapter 5, verse 3, where he expands on uh, what he's talking about here. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. He says, don't even talk about it. Now, we Americans, we love to just let it all hang out. Uh, you know, when we've had internationals in our home, they've told us, man, we wouldn't even dare to talk about the stuff you Americans talk about. They're very shy about those types of things. But we're just used to letting it all uh, hang out and talking about the sins of others and Paul says, no, you've got to be very, very discreet and not talk about the dirty secrets of others. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Coarse jesting would be off-color uh, jokes, you know, dirty jokes, uh, jokes about the former president's indiscretions. Foolish talking would be exactly that. It would be maybe perhaps jokes that are just not clever. Uh, they're not, there's nothing, there's no logic to them. It's just foolishness. It doesn't make sense. I think we need to discourage our kids from telling those kinds of jokes, especially when they're younger. They want to tell jokes like everybody else is, and they tell stuff that doesn't mean anything. But that would be along the lines here of foolishness. Uh, but I think we sometimes violate Paul's admonitions here through the use of coarse language about body, bodily functions and uh, scatological uh, speech, which is talking about excrement and things like that. Now, some people say, Pastor, you would have to live in a totally different world. You don't understand everybody talks with crude speech around the work where I'm at. And I grant you that's true. I, I spent many years working in those kinds of environments, but God calls us to have a totally different kind of a culture. And He says we ought not to speak the way that the world uh, speaks. Everything about us must change. And it is hard to put off some of those uh, old things, but we saw last week it is possible to change old habits. I think one of the most striking and vivid examples that I have seen in modern history of an entire cultural change was when the church emerged in Irian Jaya. No church there. Missionaries came. And I tell you, when those missionaries came to that country, it was shocking to them because coarse language was everywhere. In fact, the formal greeting that you're supposed to give to a new person when you meet them or to an old friend for that matter is scatological talk that I would not be able to repeat. When I read it in the missionary biography, I was like, oh, yay, man, that is gross. That is really crude. And so when these people were coming to Christ, they had to be taught what is proper ways of speech. And it made a radically different culture within a culture. And not just putting off the old behavior of no longer killing or stealing or fornicating. But their very speech was quite different. And if they could change, and they changed it rather rapidly, if they could change, we can change as well. To me, that gives us hope. 
Now, I don't have a lot of commentaries on Ephesians, and I wish this one used a little bit more modern English, but I think you get the gist of the meaning of what we've just read from this passage. Um, it's Simpson's 1957 uh, commentary. He said, Let there be no coquetting on their part with infractions of rule, no dalliance with sins of the flesh, mammonism, fooleries of babblement, especially drolleries verging on obscenity. These crying evils would flaunt as established conventions of society in such libertine environments as Ephesus. From such vicious practices, the grace of God has set them free, and it is their veriest wisdom to shun even passing fraternity with topics and scenes steeped in pernicious associations, madcap joviality and wassailing, the wildfire of farcicalities or saucy sallies of persiflage <laughs> appear to be reprehended next. Flippant facetiae or ribald uh, pleasantries garnished with blasphemous expletives draw vengeance sooner or later on the offender who knows better all the while. What he is saying, chapters 4 and 5 are ruling out all crude, all coarse language that we might engage in. Now, Paul is giving to us a seemingly impossible task, especially if you've grown up in that environment, of not having one of those words come out of our mouth and only good words to come out. He's saying just because it's in the dictionary doesn't mean that you can say it. Okay? A second aspect of what we should put off would be anything that grieves the Spirit in our speech. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, in a second, I'm going to be using that to show how this could be an incredible motivation in our lives. But for right now, I just want it to be something that reminds us it's God who defines what's good speech, not our family, our friends, our culture. Uh, we need to be asking, Lord, what kind of speech do you want us to engage in? And if you study the book of Proverbs, you'll have a wealth of information on what that would look like. Now, we've talked already about crudities. Let's just talk about the area of taking the name of the Lord in vain, because this, according to the Scripture, clearly grieves the Spirit. The third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, God considers blasphemies to be something that are so heinous that automatically He will bring something against the people who engage in blasphemy. Uh, he considers it very serious. And yet, how many times do Christians try to see not how far away they can get from blasphemy, but how close they can get to engaging in blasphemy without blaspheming? Now, I think there actually are blaspheming, but they're trying to see how close can I get to doing that. Uh, they wouldn't dare say the name Jesus as a swear word, but they say Jesus. And yet, if you look up American Heritage Dictionary, you'll see it's a shortening and alteration of Jesus. It's exactly the same thing as saying the name Jesus. So if you wouldn't want to say the name Jesus in a context, you wouldn't want to say Jesus. Uh, uh, another example, a lot of people would never say Christ as a word of disgust or frustration, or anger, or an exclamation. And yet, they say something that sounds almost exactly like that. They say cripes. C-R-I-P-E-S. In fact, the first time I heard that, when I was a kid, my friend used it, and I thought he was actually swearing with the name like it really is, Christ. And I asked him about it. He said, oh, no, I wasn't swearing. I just said cripes. And, uh, but I looked it up in the dictionary, and sure enough, the dictionary says this is a, an alteration of the name uh, Jesus. And it sounds very, very similar to Jesus. So here's the question. 
Why are we, even if we think cripes is okay, why are we seeing how close we can get to sounding like we are blaspheming without blaspheming? But I really believe, because of the dictionary definition, that it is indeed a, a blasphemy. And the Spirit knows exactly what He means. And I want to give you a sampling of some other mild uh, blasphemies so that you can look them up yourself and realize that you may be engaging in habits that need to be changed. In fact, frankly, I was uh, shocked. There's two of these. I had no idea until this week I've been engaging in blasphemy with two of these phrases. You look it up in the dictionary and it's like, whoa, this is stuff we need to really watch. And I'm very, very glad I found out because I don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. Now, all of these are taking the name of the Lord in vain when we use them in disgust, in surprise, or in anger. But what I would say is, they're also taking the name of the Lord in vain, even if you use them reverently. Now, I've never heard anybody use these words reverently, you know, and say, oh, dear, you know, cripes or something like that. They would never use them reverently. But even if they were, the Bible commands us to use his name as he has given his name, not to be making up new names of God. So I don't think there's any conditions in which these words should ever be used. Now, you can argue with the dictionary all you want, but I'm still going to be considering any use of these words to be blasphemy. And I'm not going to give the definitions. If you want to download the sermon later, you can see the definitions that I've got in the right-hand column. Begorah, be jabbers, by gum, by jove, cheese and rice, Christ's sakes, crikey, criminy, cripes, dad gum, dad gummit, Dag nabbit, dag namit, dang nabbit, doggone, doggone it, drat. That that was one I I didn't have any idea that drat meant meant uh, God rot it, <laughs> but that's what the dictionary says. And I whoa, okay, well I better quit using that. Egad, gadzooks, gat dang it, g, g whiz, g willikers, golly g willikers, good garden party. Good grief, goodness gracious, gosh, gosh darned, Jason Crisp, Jebus, Jeepers Creepers, Cheese, Jeezy Creasy, Jehoshaphat, Jiminy Christmas, Jiminy Cricket, Judas Priest, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat, Land Sakes, Locks of Mercy, My Goodness, My Gosh, Sacra Blue, Suffering Succotash. Now, there are maybe others out there, but these are the ones that I found and uh, I think are clearly using the name of God in vain. You look it up in the dictionary, it's clearly using the name of God in vain. Now, I don't want you to just be thinking, oh, Phil, that's just some more of uh, your legalism. You know, uh, let's just let's just uh, be moderate here. I want you to seriously ask God, is this a reverent using of the name of God? Why are we using these terms? Especially when the dictionary itself indicates that they are a taking of the name of the Lord in vain. Does our speech meet the criteria that's laid out by Christ? He says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now let me go a little bit further than this. I've already dug too deep for some people's liking, maybe. But let me go a little bit further and say it's not just 
the taking of the name of the Lord in vain, but taking of his attributes. According to the shorter catechism, we need to be very careful with expressions such as mercy me, goodness sakes, my goodness, holy cow. I just think of it this way. Would God be honored when I take his attributes and put it into a mocking context like holy mackerel, holy smokes, holy cow? I mean, those of you who are Batman fans, you might look at the movies with a little bit different light. After doing study on this, I'm thinking, how in the world could we have even watched those movies? Because there was so much of this kind of language in those movies. According to the Shorter Catechism, they're not reverent use of his attributes. Here's what it says. What is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Uh, older Presbyterians, if you read any biographies of some of these older Presbyterians, they would never have tolerated any of this kind of speech, especially stuff like holy mackerel or anything like that. They would never have tolerated it. The larger catechism says in part, the third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are not using of God's name as is required. In other words, if you substitute something else for the name of God, uh, then that's a violation as well. By the way, this is one of the reasons why philosophically, I think it is a problem when we substitute for the name Yahweh uh, the word Lord. Uh, because we're commanded in the Old Testament that we are to use, it's given as a command, we are to use the name of the Lord. We're to call upon the name of the Lord. And yet many people won't even touch that. And I think that came from Jewish uh, superstition. They didn't want to accidentally use God's name in vain. And so they said, well, let's go one step further. Let's never use God's name. And yet we're commanded specifically to use it. So he says, uh, not using of God's name as is required, and the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent way, etc. Now, having listed all of those things, I think most of us are probably convinced, man alive, we've got, we've got a ton of speech that we probably have to, uh, have to put off. And I myself have blasphemed, as I mentioned earlier. The third commandment says that God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You will suffer for it. You will. In fact, God's severity against blasphemy, you study that out, it is so severe, I am extremely thankful for the comfort that God gives in 1 Timothy 1.13, where Paul said, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He says, God forgave me because I did it ignorantly. And God can wash all of that away. But if after hearing this message, you continue to say, I don't care what Pastor Kaiser says, I'm going to continue to engage in this speech, then God will hold you to account. I can guarantee you of that. He will bring discipline into your life. And so I would urge you to come to his grace for cleansing, for past sins, even now. Just say, Lord, please forgive me. I had no idea that I was blaspheming your name. And secondly, I would urge you to come to his grace for putting off the old, because in ourselves we can't, and putting on the new. In fact, I'd go one step further. I would say we're called upon to exhort one another and encourage and stir up good works, aren't we? So let's do this. 
If you ever hear me saying something uh, along these lines, let's use a hand signal. Just put your hand over your mouth like that and we can continue with the conversation because we've, we've, we've wrestled with this. What do you do? You hate just interrupting the flow of conversation. You know that these people are not intending anything bad. And so you just ignore it, but you never get around to telling people. So that might be a very easy way of just doing this. And if you think I'm being legalistic in my interpretation, you can just ignore that hand signal, continue talking. I can't imagine how you would interpret this as being legalistic. But if you do, you can. And if you are convinced, yes, this is something I want to put off, just that hand signal is a, a reminder in your head. Oh, yeah, I did it again. Lord, please help me. But you can continue on with your conversation but it'll be a reinforcing that we can give with each other because I want our congregation to move beyond uh, this problem with uh, using bad speech. Now, let's go on to what we should put on. That's what we should put off. And I've divided what we should put on into five categories. Paul says, first of all, that we should speak what is good. And this is talking about the standards of speech. Uh, God does not just say, OK, I want you to have good speech, but you can define whatever good speech is. Obviously not, right? Uh, the scripture says there is only one good, that is God. That's what Christ says in Luke 18, verse 19. So biblically speaking, he is saying God is the definer of good. He's the only one who is good. Everything else is good, relatively speaking, uh, if there is good out there. But we need to look to God for the definition. And what I would encourage you to do is study the book of Proverbs and it gives you a wealth of information of what is good speech. And the second thing I would encourage you to do is to read the larger catechism's exposition of the third and ninth commandments. It is fabulous. And then read the scripture proof texts that are at the bottom of the page. Hopefully, if you don't have one that has them all written out, that's the easiest way to do it. Get one that has it all written out. There is a wealth of information in there on the third and the ninth commandments of how we can improve uh, our speech. But if you're not going to let even one bad word come out of your mouth, only good words, that means you've got to slow down and think, right? Uh, if you're like me, those zingers just come up real quick. And they just come up before you're even thinking. He says, man, you need to reflect for a moment. And here's what uh, Proverbs 29.20 says. Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. James 1.19 says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Okay, we're, we're developing here a pretty tall order, right? It's like, boy, do I, how am I going to be able to get over that, 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 those habits of speech? The second word that characterizes the new habit of speech that we should develop is we need to be sensitive to the circumstances that we are in. Now, you can find that with the word necessary. Uh, the dictionary gives two basic definitions. First, what is needed, required, or necessary for the situation and the second definition is the business or circumstances at hand. Now, both of those indicate that there is the situation we need to be thinking about when I'm speaking my word. Is this the appropriate word for this circumstance that I am dealing with? Here's how the New American Standard translates it. According to the need of the moment, uh, Amplified Bible has as is fitting to the need and the occasion. ESV has as fits the occasion. Now, let me illustrate how this might work. Proverbs 27:14 tells us, "He who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him." Now, blessing your friend, that's a great thing. It's a good thing. 
Blessing your friend with a loud voice, occasionally that can be a good thing too. But blessing him with a loud voice 3 (laughs) a.m., that would not be considered cool. Uh, Ordinarily, unless you're wanting to get him up, you know, to go to the airport or something like that. But usually not considered cool. Now, we would recognize that intuitively. Okay, this is not the situation for a loud voice. Everybody's sleeping. Not everybody's that sensitive to situations. But there are lots of situations where we don't recognize the circumstance that the Bible addresses. For example, the Bible says, Paul told Timothy, do not rebuke an older man. So you can rebuke a younger one. Don't rebuke an older man. So he says, both need correction, but because the circumstance of the older gentleman is different, you need to address him differently. Uh, Scripture says, a soft answer turns away wrath. So he says, boy, this is maybe not the situation to be blunt and come in there and tell it just like it is. We need to diffuse the tension in this situation with some soft words. So we've got to be looking at what the situation is. When I was in my last year of Bible school back in 1978, I was, uh, from my perspective, you know, very good at uh, logically thinking through problems and saying, okay, let's, let's work on this. Uh, here's uh, premise one, two, three. Here's the conclusion. And uh, I was really mystified why some weeks I could talk with my sister and, you know, we just were able to dialogue no problem and we were able to resolve problems uh, without any issues. And then there were other times that same approach, same speech would just irritate her and make her mad. And I was just really frustrated. My mom helped me to realize, Phil, she's going through a period. You've got to realize she's got emotionally frayed. <laughs> uh, you know, her emotions are just uh, wild during this time. So we're not going to ignore the problem, but you've got to approach it a little bit differently. So she showed me how to approach my sister and we worked through the same problems, but we did it differently. We're sensitive to the situation. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying here. As the situation dictates. Now, sometimes the situation is that the person already knows that he has done wrong and we don't need to be going over there and preaching at them and lecturing at them. Sometimes this drives kids nuts. You know, they've already confessed their sin. And then for the next five minutes, you know, they're listening to their parents, you know, lecturing and preaching at them. And the scripture indicates that um, we've got to recognize in one situation, a lecture is absolutely needed. Another situation, this person's heart is sensitive. They don't need the lecture. You need to pray with them and encourage them to move on. Now, there's a saying that says, if a thing will go without saying, then let it go. <laughs> and I think that's exactly right. So point one is that we need to have the right standard for speech. Point two is we need to be sensitive to the circumstances for speech. And then the third point is we need to have the right goal, and that is to build up a person. That's what the word edification means. Uh, it's actually used in, in building, literally building brick upon brick a house. Uh, you, edifice, you know, an edifice is a thing that's been edified. It's been built up. But here it's using it metaphorically and it's saying, if your speech tears down a person, it's bad. If it builds up a person, it's good. Now, he's not saying you can't tear down self-destructive behavior. He's not saying you can't ever have any negative speech, but your goal should be ultimately for this guy's good to build him up. Listen to the call that God gave to Jeremiah. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Now, before he could build up, which is edifying, right? And before he could plant, 
He had to tear down some things, but his ultimate goal was not to tear down. His ultimate goal, I'm tearing this down so that I can build up. And so if our goal is simply to tear down people for the sake of tearing down, that's where we're missing the boat. It's not saying you can't uh, oppose ungodly behavior. Some people engage in gossip and they think that, you know, they're really concerned for this individual and they look concerned. They come to you and they say, man, did you know that Joel's involved in XYZ sin? And uh, or some other person and and your response should be, no, I didn't know that. And you really should be the one that confronts that individual about that. Now, if you want to be really mean, you can say, but now that you've involved me, we need to both go and confess the sin of gossip and confront that person about their sin. And uh, if you do this consistently, people will never gossip in front of you. Guaranteed. <laughs> they will not. They don't want to really deal with the problem. They just want to talk to you about the problem. And maybe hopefully you will deal with the problem. But Matthew 18, you've got to keep pointing them back to that. It says to go with him and deal with him alone. And if it's solved at that level, that's as far as it ever goes. We don't need to know about it. The pastor doesn't need to know about it. And so gossip does not edify but what is building up? Verses 11 through 16. I'll give you a few scriptures here to help define this word. In verses 11 through 16, it uses the word edify, the Greek word there, two times. It's translated as build up. Two times to indicate that building up involves giving of truth, doctrine, warnings, love, and concern for the other's welfare. So that's, that's a pretty good definition right within uh, this uh, chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 14, indicates that building up or edifying another person means serving those people with words and helping their understanding. In fact, uh, one of the illustrations that it uses in that chapter is uh, if you don't translate the tongues that they were speaking in, the other languages, then these people are not going to be edified by definition. Why? Because understanding is essential to edification. And by the way, that's why I absolutely do not buy the idea that tongues was not known. It says the man who speaks in tongue edifies himself. By definition, that means he understands what he was speaking. So he understands what he's speaking. Nobody else does. So he says, you're, you're edified, but nobody else is. So part of the definition of, of edification is helping people to understand. 2 Corinthians 13.10 indicates that edifying can sometimes involve sharp words of rebuke. And Paul says, I'm giving these sharp words of rebuke not for destruction, but for edification, for building you up. Uh, Romans 14, 19 rules out saying lawful things simply because they're lawful. He says, instead, don't be selfish. You need to be understanding what is in the other person's best interests. Uh, there was um, a girl that was a friend of Kathy's at Covenant College that I think was an exemplar probably the best person along these lines because when she talked to you, it was so fun to talk with her because she'd get you talking about yourself. You don't know. Uh, she was so interested in you very genuinely that it was hard to steer the conversation back onto her and what she was about because she was so genuinely interested in you, your concerns, your needs, what issues you're going through. But he's saying that's edification, being interested in the other person's welfare. Now, I do need to be careful here not to give you the wrong idea. This does not mean that the Bible is the only topic of conversation. Now, some people, when they look at these passages, they say the Bible is the only topic of conversation that you can engage in. 
And uh, so they make pests out of themselves by always changing the subject back to a, a Bible thing. Now, the Bible is supposed to control all of our education. But just as an example, I don't want you going home and thinking, man, the only way I can... You know, be romantic with my wife is gaze into her eyes and say, your eyes remind me of Zedekiah 3.17, you know, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> scripture indicates everything of life is addressed by the Scripture, right? Everything is addressed by the, the Bible. And so uh, we don't have to always be pulling things back from a discussion of the Middle East or football to the hypostatic union of Christ or some other doctrine. Instead, what we can do is we can bring the Bible to bear on the topics that are there. Or even if you're not mentioning it, you can bring, in some way bring it to a bear. For example, when you tell your kids, OK, kids, it's time to go to bed. You don't have to give a scripture proof for going to bed, do you? Now, if they argue with you and they say, why do we always have to go to bed? You know, at nine o'clock, then you can sit them down and say, OK, look, kids, the Bible says it is not good to sit up late, to rise up early. For so he gives his beloved sleep. You're going to be getting up early tomorrow. I don't want you to be cranky and grouchy. And the Bible says you shouldn't be cranky and grouchy. Besides that, the Bible says I'm supposed to look after your health. And it's for your health that you go to bed. And so you can give them a whole theology, you know, of going to bed on time. But you don't have to do that every time. We are assuming, especially if we've been doing our education of our kids well, we're assuming a whole biblical grid through which we're uh, through which we're talking. So you don't always have to be referencing the Bible, but the Bible is in the background of what we are talking about. It, it addresses our sleep, our entertainment, our work, and everything. Okay, the last phrase in verse 29 is that it may impart grace to the hearers. I think it is so cool that God even can use our lips to manifest his grace. See, grace is not something we can supply. Grace's source is in God and grace is used to bring sanctification into the lives of other people. And so what Paul is saying here is what James describes as the most unruly member of our body, our tongues, can be used as a vehicle of God's grace. Now, this sort of blows me away. Uh, the, how God works in this, in, in this way through the weakness of man. Let me read to you from Romans 3, 13 to 14. And this is a passage that describes the natural man apart from grace. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He's saying apart from God's restraining grace and his uh, enabling grace, this is the way that our lips would act. They, they would not be vehicles of grace. It's the very opposite of that. And yet Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, let me just comment just very briefly on that parallel passage. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Three things I want you to notice about that. First of all, this is an absolute rule. He says, always. Always there has to be grace with your speech. Second, I want you to notice that grace is not the subject of your speech because you got the speech here and it says, with grace, with salt. So the salt's alongside and the grace is alongside so you don't have to be talking all day long about grace, but he's saying whenever you talk, God's grace needs to be there governing your speech. Third thing I want you to notice 
Oh, I, I should mention on that. You can talk about sports, math, mowing the yard, but it's all devoted to God. It's controlled by God. You're desiring Him to be lifted up. Okay, third thing about that speech is it's seasoned with salt. Now, some people want to give you nothing but salt to eat, right? Okay, we're going to blow on you the hypostatic union of Christ. And when we're finished with that, the Trinity, and we're going to go, that's all we're going to talk about. That's given to people salt. Uh, what happens when you eat nothing but salt? <laughs> you know, it, it becomes a little bit hard. Now, that's a beautiful thing, especially on the Sabbath, to be talking about theology. We want to do that. But this doesn't say 24-7, that's all you can talk about, is salt. It says your speech is seasoned with salt. You're shaking the salt on it, making sure that it is edifying to the people that you're talking to. So just that by way of, of uh, clarification. Now, even with that clarification, this is still an incredibly tall order. This is tough. James says it's so tough. He uses these words. No man can tame the tongue. There's anybody. No man can tame the tongue. Uh, you hear vile language at work. You hit your thumb with a hammer. <laughs> What's the first word? Pops out. The stuff you've been hearing. You, oh, man, where did that come from? And you're, you're, you're tempted, you know, to tell a dirty joke or you catch yourself singing a nasty song that you learned, you know, before you became a Christian. You're tempted to gossip or to bite somebody's head off. And you say, oh, Lord, here, once again, I've fallen into sin. Why is it I can't gain a victory over this? You fall on your face flat over and over again. Now, should you just give up and say, okay, James says no one can tame the tongue. I'm not even going to try. James goes to a totally different conclusion. In fact, such a different conclusion. He says, how is it, brethren, that you can have both vile and gracious speech coming out of the same source? He says, that's utterly inconsistent with your character as Christians. In fact, it's so inconsistent, it would be like a fig tree bearing olives or a grapevine bearing figs. Paul here says the same thing as James. He says, you cannot excuse your sin. You've got to put off the old habit. You've got to put on the new habit. And you can conquer that bad speech that keeps coming out of your mouth. And I would urge you to review last week's sermon, which gives you some of the specific steps that you may need to take in order to be able to accomplish this. But I just want to end with three motivations given in verse 30 that can help us to stop. The first motivation is the realization that the Holy Spirit cares about what we say. There is a current theology of grace out there nowadays that just says, you know, once you're saved, it really doesn't matter what you do or what you say. In fact, as one person says, God is fond of you just the way you are. Well, I think that is totally false. Verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is an incredibly strong word. And let me assure you, it does not mean that God is fond of you just the way you are any more than a parent would say, oh yeah, I'm just fond of this kid who's uh, throwing insults at me and throwing manure at me or whatever the thing that the kid is doing. You're not fond of that behavior. Okay, you, you like the kid, you love him, and you're going to make sure this kid gets a licking so he's moving in the right direction. But there is a definite grieving that that parent is going through when he sees his kid engaging in that behavior. Well, the same is true here. The word for grieve refers to deep sorrow and psychological pain. Every passage in the New Testament word is used. My main dictionary defines this as to cause severe mental or emotional distress, to vex, irritate, offend, or insult. This was the word that was used to describe 
the deep sorrow that Christ went through when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, realizing that shortly He was going to be bearing the sins of His elect uh, in His body. It describes Him as in agony of spirit. He says, I am exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. His moral separation, which is described by the word holy, made this close proximity to sin an excruciating agony for him. It was distressing. Now, we might just chalk it up to the fact that he was human and say, well, yeah, humans go through that kind of distress and pain. But we humans don't tend to react that strongly to uh, sins that we see around us. We should, but we don't. It was his holiness, his separation from sin that made this so distressing to him. It was psychological pain. Now, what I find remarkable is the same word that's used to describe Christ's emotional pain is used of the Holy Spirit. Um, by indwelling us, he is in the close, closest possible contact with sin without sinning himself. Uh, he, he says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we're defiling the temple, it grieves him. We're supposed to be his ambassadors. And when instead of representing him as ambassadors with good speech that reflects well on him, we're coming out with all of this gross stuff. It grieves him. It's no wonder that in James four or five, he says, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So if we're to take the Greek word here seriously at all, in some sense, the sinful words torment him. Cause severe distress, grieve him. Now, when I meditate on that, man, that's an incredible motivation because I don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. Now, there's a second thing about that phrase that motivates me, and that is that grieving the Spirit guarantees we're going to be disciplined. Uh, commentators believe that Paul likely had Isaiah 63, verses 9 through 10 in mind. It's almost a quotation, but they, they're convinced he had that passage in mind. That passage speaks not only of God's deep love for his people, but his being grieved and his disciplining his people. Isaiah 63, verses 9 and 10. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. It's referring to God. He is so close to his people. When we're afflicted, he is afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Now, these are saved people that he's talking about. And so this is guaranteeing when we grieve the Spirit, we're going to be disciplined. Now, again, there's many modern expositions of grace that uh, leave God's disciplines completely out of the equation. But if you read Hebrews 12, I think you'll be convinced absolutely God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says those whom He loves, He chastens. And if you're without chastening, you're illegitimate. You're not sons. He guarantees uh, in that passage that there will be discipline. And he points to Esau who could not be restored to repentance. But then let me read his conclusion. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion. He describes Mount Zion as even more glorious and let me skip two and a half verses. So see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape, 
who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. He's saying that it's even a greater accountability that we've got to God. A couple of verses later, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So I'm motivated because of my love for God and his love for me. I'm motivated also by the fact I don't want to grieve the spirit, but I'm also motivated by the fact I don't want to get whooped on by the spirit. Okay, he's a disciplining God and he's I'm not going to get away with my ungodliness. Now, it's sometimes hard for us to appreciate how much God hates sin and how much sin grieves him. Why? Because we're not perfectly holy. But God has given us a number of vivid illustrations in the Bible to communicate with us how distasteful sin is to him. He likens the sin of his people to the scum of a boiling pot in which a rotting carcass is being cooked. That's Ezekiel 24, 10 through 12. He likens our sin to the stench of a grave that has been dug up. Romans 3, verse 13. You can talk to Larry and ask him how gross that is. He likens it to the vomit of a dog. 2 Peter 2, verse 22. He likens it to putrefying, oozing, pussy sores. Isaiah 1, verses 5 through 6. And actually, there's a couple more that are even grosser that I'm not going to read to you right now. But he gives those to try to convey to us. He says, just imagine, not only, some of you are probably squeamish just thinking about pussy sores and stuff like that, but think of what it would be like to be in close contact with that stuff and you get a little bit of a taste of how distasteful our sins are to Almighty God. How much He is distressed by the things that we engage in. Don't take this sermon lightly. Another thing that motivates me to holiness is that we are loved and owned and empowered by the Spirit. Verse 30 goes on to say, The Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. A seal had four functions. Uh, First of all, it was a certification of authenticity. See, by indwelling us, the Spirit certifies the authenticity of the fact that we are saints. Can you see the tension there? Second, a seal marked a document as belonging to somebody. It marked the ownership uh, of, uh, of an object. Now, what kind of a testimony does it give to the God who loves us, owns us, purchased us for himself? Third, a seal protected against tampering. This is why Jesus' tomb was sealed. And this is why in Revelation it says that God put a seal upon uh, the believers during that period of time so that the demons would see and they would not touch them. They were protected. But see, when we sin deliberately against the Holy Spirit, what we are doing is we are giving, as verse, what verse was it? Verse um, 27 says, we're giving legal ground to Satan. Here we're being protected. This is the whole purpose of the Spirit. But when we grieve the Spirit, we're giving legal ground for Satan to take advantage of us. The fourth purpose of a seal was a guarantee of payment. You could just think of it like a modern credit card. When you sign that credit card, you are obligated to pay. Well, when they put that seal onto either the wet clay or onto the wax, they were saying, we're covering this. We are guaranteeing that we are going to pay. And the Spirit is the guarantee of our final salvation on Judgment Day. Now, when you see everything that's involved in the sealing of the Holy Spirit, 
you can understand why it is so inconsistent in verses 17 and following for him to, uh, for us to be living like pagans when we have been sealed as sons. Totally inconsistent. It's a contradiction in terms. But it's also an encouragement that we can change because the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee He will complete the good work that He has begun in you. You can count on it. It's the expression of His love for us. Uh, By the Spirit, we have access to a power for holiness nobody else has. You can uh, lick this problem uh, with your speech. And uh, again, I refer you back to some of the steps He's given. The third motivation to holiness is to consider where we are headed. Uh, Verse 30 continues, "...by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." According to Romans 8.23, the day of redemption is the day of the resurrection of our bodies. That's when our bodies finally enter in fully into uh, into redemption. And so that's the fullest and final expression of the holiness and all that God has purchased for us uh, is going to accomplish. And so the third motivation is we are on the road to holiness. The beginning was the call to holiness, the end is the accomplishment of holiness and everything in between is leading us in that direction. So if we've stopped, we've stopped the whole purpose for why the Spirit is moving us along. It's the road to holiness. In fact, Hebrews says, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. He's moving us constantly into holiness. If you're not being sanctified, you're not a Christian. If you're not growing, you're not a Christian. Because justification is always linked to sanctification. Now, we're not justified by our works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved in terms of justification only by the righteousness of Christ, but that immediately begins to move Christ's righteousness into our lives if we were genuinely, if we were genuinely justified. And so, uh, what I would urge you and encourage you to do is to thank God by faith, even though it seems tough, that He has given to you everything that pertains to life and godliness and say, Lord, first, cleanse me. Uh, from all of the sins of speech I've engaged in. And please help me now as we as a body begin to exhort one another to put off the bad, to put on the new. And may you, Lord, be glorified in what we do and say. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is our uh, glory to follow it and to confess where we have failed to follow it. But I pray that you would, by your spirit, strengthen us with all might in the inner man, and that you would give to us victory as we try to put off these old habits of speech and try to put on new habits. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.